Aren't you glad you came? There is a purpose for you to be here today. Maybe it's to hear what Corey and Tim just talked about. Maybe it's to worship the God who is present with us here saying, Come, Holy Spirit, come. I need you desperately. Maybe it's to hear this word of challenge today, which is that we need to continue, maybe finish, or maybe it's just even taking the first step towards forgiveness as we walk in this life with Jesus Christ. If you have your Bible, open up to Ephesians chapter 4. If you need a Bible, take the one that's in the seat rack in front of you on your row and turn to page 152 in that blue or yellow Bible. Or if it's your phone, dial up Ephesians chapter 4. And as you turn there, maybe you're new to the Bible and I want to give you just a quick overview of of what this thing's all about that we're going to be looking at today. The Bible is made up of 66 individual books. There's 39 books in the Old Testament. There's 27 books in the New Testament. Testament is a Latin word meaning covenant or agreement. So there's 66 books that are comprised here in the Bible. We're going to look at one of those books, the book of Ephesians here today. There's several different authors that have written the Bible inspired by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just one person who wrote it. There was many people. There was kings like King Solomon, King David. There was simple fishermen like Peter. There was educated doctors like Luke. God in his grace and power and in his perfect sovereignty used the backgrounds of different people to write the 66 books of the Bible. And here's the amazing thing, is that all these authors with distinct backgrounds, they wrote a book that is totally unified. There is one major big story to these 66 books. And you know what that story is? Is that God has come to rescue you and I from sin. Sin that wants to control us and have power over us. God has come to rescue us. He is our redeemer. And the hero of this scripture is not any person in history. The hero of the scriptures is God himself. Who reveals his perfect character, his nature, his power, his grace, his love, his compassion. This is what the Bible is all about. And there's no greater spokesperson for this great story of the scriptures than a guy named Paul. If you're new to the Bible, maybe you don't know Paul's story. We call him Apostle Paul. His name used to be Saul, and he was a religious legalist in the first century. He was a Judaizer. He was um, wanting to pursue the law to perfection. And the result of his religious legalism was this. He was bitter. He was angry. He was frustrated. And he was disappointed. And that path literally led him to murder as he is part of this group that goes after this new way, these followers of Jesus Christ, Christians. Paul participates in murdering Christians. A guy named Stephen, you can read about in the book of Acts. But then one day, Paul, this religious legalist, traveling from Jerusalem and Israel up north to what we call modern-day Syria, meets Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself shows up to this guy named Paul 
And in the book of Acts chapter 9, you see what this conversation looks like when Jesus shows up. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told to you what you must do. And from that moment on, based on that interaction with Jesus, Paul's life is forever changed. He goes from being this religious, bitter legalist to having his heart and his life transformed to being a person who is grace-filled, following the one that he persecuted, Jesus Christ. And now he's even a missionary going around the world and telling the great story that is encompassed here in the scriptures. Isn't that great? That's Paul. And Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wound up in a place called Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. And it was in the region of Ephesus that he begins to have a heart for the people there to know Jesus. And he pens this beautiful letter that we call the book of Ephesians. And here in Ephesians chapter 4, I want you to look just specifically at verse 30. And it says this. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I just want to sit on this verse for a couple of minutes. Because this single sentence right here has so much power. There is so much to unpack in this single verse. Ephesians 4.30. And first what I want you to see is I want you to see the role and the nature of the Holy Spirit. And then after we kind of get a brief understanding of the Holy Spirit, then we'll move on to talking about the journey of forgiveness. But the Holy Spirit, I want you to see here, is part of the Trinity. We call the Trinity the God the Father... God the Son, which is Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, one God. Three in one. This describes the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is a member of the Trinity. And over the centuries, people have tried to explain that. And they've, they've used different analogies. All the analogies fall short. But they've tried to understand and then explain to others what exactly is the Trinity. What is this concept of three and one, is it we're worshiping three gods? No, it's one God. But three persons? And so someone came up with this idea. The idea of the three-leaf clover. The idea that there's three different clovers here. And you can call it the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But they're all rooted in the same stem. And so some have found this helpful to describe the Trinity. It's distinct people, but they're all kind of connected together. But this analogy falls a bit short because it makes too much distinction and doesn't emphasize the unity, the oneness of the Trinity. And so while this is helpful, it still falls a bit short. Others have given the example of a, a man. And they've said, you know, this man, like Steve Camacho is here somewhere. Steve Camacho's birthday is today. And Steve Camacho is a husband. And he is a son. And Steve is a dad. And so, I mean, that kind of describes the Trinity. You have, you know, he's a husband, relates to his wife one way. As a son, he relates to his parents one way. And as a dad, he relates, you know, a third way. But again, this illustration falls a bit short. Because it describes a person who changes based on who they're relating to. So you're a husband when you're relating to your wife. But you're a father when you're relating to your kids. And that's not how the Trinity works. The Trinity doesn't morph not like father now turns into the son 
And the Son, when needed be, turns into the Holy Spirit. No, no, no. This doesn't provide enough distinction of what the Trinity is. So on one hand, our analogies fall short because they don't emphasize the unity of God. And on the other hand, they fall short because they don't emphasize the distinction of God. And so what are we to do when it comes to describing the Trinity? Because this is important. This matters. When a Jehovah Witness knocks on your door, they're going to want to talk to you about the Trinity. And what are you going to say to that? Uh, uh, YouTube it? <laughs> I don't know. Um, this matters. So how do we describe the Trinity? How do we talk about the Trinity? I just want to give you a couple helpful ideas. One is embrace the mystery of the Trinity. It's okay not to fully be able to explain the Trinity. It's important to know that each person of the Trinity is God. But you don't have to explain every single detail. Embrace the mystery of it. Isaiah 55 says this. This is God speaking. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. At some point, we have to recognize our limitation as finite beings trying to describe an infinite God. And yet, we shouldn't just punt at that, like, I don't get it, I don't know, let's move on. The scriptures... These 66 books, written by a variety of authors, they do give us great insight into the Trinity. One of the things that we see here is that the Holy Spirit is a full-fledged member of this triune Godhead. The Holy Spirit is a person. And as we think through this journey of forgiveness, this is where it needs to start. Understanding the role of the Holy Spirit when it comes to forgiveness. Verse 30 again says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So this is showing that the Holy Spirit is a person. You can grieve this person who is God. The Holy Spirit is not just a force like Star Wars. My eight-year-old son was playing with his friend Malachi a couple weeks ago. And I came to pick up my eight-year-old. And we get in the car and he goes, Dad. Malachi knows the force. <laughs> I was like, really? Uh, what do you mean? He goes, he had me close my eyes. And I stuck out my hands. And then all of a sudden, he used the force to put a stick in my hands. I'm like, whoa, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, Dad, he knows the force. And so I didn't poke holes on it. I just continued his Star Wars fantasy, which I know half of this room is still in as well. Um, but the Holy Spirit isn't an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is personal. The Holy Spirit knows you and loves you, just like the Father does, just like the Son, Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit can be grieved by our sinful actions and our internal attitudes. If you're in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, now just go up a few verses to verse 25. We looked at this last week. I want to just read it again. Verse 25 of Ephesians 4 says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sin go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. 
He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has a need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word is as good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. And then again, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away for you, along with malice. The scriptures are pointing out here that the Holy Spirit, as a person, as a member of the Trinity, can be grieved. And some of the things that grieve the Holy Spirit are listed. Lying, anger, stealing, unwholesome talk. Bitterness, wrath, clamor, which basically means to shout or, or to threaten somebody. Slander and malice, which is uh, basically to have the idea that you want to hurt somebody in your heart. These things grieve the Holy Spirit. In the original language here in Ephesians 4, here in verse 30, the word grief means to deeply burden to make sad. So our outward actions and our internal thoughts can actually grieve God. Have you ever thought about that for more than a second? It's crazy. I think sometimes when it comes to sin, we classify it. We say, okay, there's certain sins and, and they're really bad because they impact other people. And then there's kind of like a second tier of sins that, that aren't so bad because really they don't really impact anyone else. They're more internal thoughts. And the only person maybe they hurt is myself, but it doesn't really affect anyone else. If you have an understanding of the Holy Spirit, you realize that that's not true. That every one of our sinful actions and attitudes, even if it's internal, that no one else sees, the Holy Spirit knows and sees and is grieved by those actions and those thoughts. That's intense. That's, that raises the stakes for me when it comes to the idea of forgiveness. Because so much of unforgiveness is underground. On the outside, we're doing okay. You're shopping at Trader Joe's. How's your day? It's great. I'm doing fine. Maybe another level of friendship. No, tell me how you're doing. Like, what's going on? Well, I have this going on, and, but we never get to that core level, that place where we're harboring bitterness, anger, and unforgiveness. And we get to the point where we're okay with that because it really doesn't impact anyone else. And yet, as we look at the scriptures, as we understand the role of the Holy Spirit, we realize not only does the Spirit know, but He's grieved by our bitterness, our unforgiveness. This raises the stakes for me when it comes to taking this journey of forgiveness. But I want to give you some encouragement in this. The rest of verse 30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And this idea of sealing is pretty cool. It means that when you become a Christian, whether that was at a vacation Bible school when you were a kid, whether that was when you were in college uh, through a campus ministry, whether that was with, at a coffee shop with a friend or even just in the quietness of your car, 
Whenever you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, whenever you said, Jesus, I believe that you are my Savior, forgive me of my sins, be the leader, the Lord of my life, when you did that, the Holy Spirit came in your life and he sealed you. He seals you until the day that Christ comes to redeem you. Just rest in that. What that means is that even when you grieve the Holy Spirit, he won't leave you. That's an encouragement to me. Because as I live my life, boy, it starts to become burdensome. We're going, okay, I know I'm grieving the Spirit. I know I'm struggling with this. Lord, what am I going to do? Take heart. The Spirit will never leave you. He won't get over you. He will not give up on you. Know that. Be confident of that. Rest in that. And yet understand that there is consequences to grieving the Spirit. He will not leave us, and yet we experience consequences when we sin. See, the Holy Spirit's goal for our life is to bring glory to God through our lives. And the way the Holy Spirit does that is he causes our lives to reflect Jesus Christ. He allows our lives to follow God's will. He gives us the power and the strength to grow. So hopefully who you are today as a follower of Jesus is different than who you are tomorrow because the Spirit is growing you and changing you and moving you on this journey with Jesus. And yet, when we sin, the Spirit's grieved and the Spirit's power is not evident in our life. And so a Christian life that is meant to be full of hope and joy and marked by grace and forgiveness instead looks despairing and discouraging. And we have this inner conflict between what the Spirit wants and what our flesh is doing. And that just creates turmoil in our life. And one of the byproducts of that is people around us see it. And they go, if if that's what being a Christian is, why bother? That guy's miserable as he tries to pursue Jesus. And the reason that's happening is because that person is grieving the Spirit by their sinful actions and and their internal thoughts. And so we don't live the life of victory that that God's calling us and, and wanting us to live. And so here's the big question. This is what I've been wrestling with and I invite you to wrestle with as well. How do we live this Christian life? Not enchained to bitterness, unforgiveness, but instead just living lives that are free, marked by just tangible grace, marked by contagious and enthusiastic forgiveness for others. How do we live that type of life? That's the life that I want for you, and that's the life that I want for myself. And this journey begins or continues or even ends with this idea that there must be a supernatural exchange. Look at verse 30 again, down to 31 of Ephesians 4. It says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. You see, there needs to be a great exchange. An exchange from bitterness to kindness. From anger and wrath 
to forgiveness. Now, there's a few ways that that exchange can take place. There's ways that we can muster up that exchange. But those exchanges have conditions to them when they're in our own strength. We can temporarily exchange bitterness for kindness. But usually, we're willing to do that when there's something in it for us. So I will give away my bitterness towards this person who's injured me. And I will choose to live in kindness towards that person because they're my parent and they give me money for my car. <laughs> or I choose to exchange my anger for my coworker because I really need their help on this project. And so we have conditions to this exchange. But it doesn't last very long. As we all know, we could all stand up here and tell our stories, right? So conditional responses to this exchange don't work. We can temporarily forgive people kind of on the surface, you know. We have a meeting with them. We talk out our differences. We agree to disagree. And we say we forgive one another. And then we move on. But how long does it normally take for bitterness to begin to creep back in to that relationship? Sometimes just a mere minutes. Sometimes hours, days, but we can't hold it off. Sometimes what we do to deal with this idea of, okay, I don't want to be bitter. I don't want to be anger, angry. I'm going to live here in kindness and grace and, and forgiveness. Is we go, okay, I'm just going to box up that bitterness. That pain that someone or something has caused me. I'm just going to box it up. I'm going to leave it over here. And when I'm walking this journey of life, when I come across that box... I'm just going to step around it. Like, peace out. Don't need to deal with you. <laughs> Every once in a while, we're invited or forced to deal with that box. It's a reunion of your high school class. And you see that person. <laughs> it's a family gathering where you can't avoid being in the kitchen with that person at the exact same time. And we're forced to deal with that box a little bit, but... It's painful, and so we just kind of box it back up as quick as we can, throw some duct tape on it, and then move away. And so basically we ignore it. That's how we try to become kind and forgiving, is we just ignore it. So none of these options are good options. They don't deal with the core root problem. What we need, and Eric even alluded to this in his time with announcements, is we need a deep core change. We need a supernatural change. Because it is not natural to choose forgiveness. It's not. Think about, and I'll just take kind of a basic example. Think about you're on the 55 freeway today. You're with some friends, and so you're in the carpool lane. You're driving on the carpool lane, and then on the 55, you're headed towards Newport. And then you know how the traffic around John Wayne always backs up right there? And so the other four lanes are backed up. You're in the carpool lane cruising, and then someone just quickly shoots over. And they cut you off. And you slam on your brakes. And ah, and then all of a sudden you honk because you're just scared. And you're kind of angry. And then they give you the one finger salute. And you go, no way. This person just cut me off. And now they're cursing me. And so this anger begins just to rage inside of you. You're not even sure where it comes from. But it's come quick. And you're ready to go. And you have a couple options at that point. You can tailgate them and, and try to intimidate them. You can follow them off the freeway 
You can, I'm not saying I've ever done this, but you can get a hot cup of coffee and throw it on their windshield when you stop at a stoplight next to them. You can take this a lot of different ways. It's not unnatural to do any of those things. Those things would come easy. And yet, what does the supernatural look like? What's it supernaturally look like? Not just to ignore what happened. Not just to like let it go. What does it look like to literally, from the core of you, choose to have empathy for that driver? Choose to forgive that person for risking your life. Choose to let it go, not just not think about it, but literally not have it bother you anymore. That's a supernatural thing that has to happen, right? None of us can conjure that up. It has to be the Holy Spirit. And so we have this choice in life. We can grieve the Spirit. We can just go with what comes natural. Or we can surrender the Holy Spirit and say, God, I have no power to do this on my own. I need your Holy Spirit to give me strength and power to do what I honestly don't want to do right now. Release me from this bitterness, this anger, this rage. Release me, God. Only you can do it. I need supernatural intervention. That begins the journey of forgiveness. And the motivation for this entire journey is this. It's the last little verse, Ephesians 4.32. It's so good. It says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Oh, this is the ultimate checkmate. <laughs> Paul saying, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. This is a big deal. These stakes are high. Your internal attitudes, they matter to God. You need a supernatural exchange. And oh yeah, by the way, Jesus forgave you like you're called to forgive others. You see, there's this idea that when we forgive someone or something, there's a cost to it. Someone pays a cost for our forgiveness. If we choose to forgive them, we actually take on the cost, right? Because we're letting them off the hook. If we choose not to forgive them, we're putting the cost on that person. We're saying it's your fault, I'm the victim, you deserve to carry this cost. Jesus doesn't offer either solution. He says, I will take the cost. I, Jesus, will take the cost on the cross, on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and this world's sins. If you're in Ephesians 40, I want you to flip back over to the Gospels. Look at Luke chapter 23. We dive right into the setting of the crucifixion here in Luke chapter 23. It's the high point in the drama. I'm just skipping right in the DVD to the final scene. Luke 23, verse 34. Jesus was saying, and you've heard these words before, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The scene of the cross right there is that there's soldiers mocking. The criminals on either side are hurling insults at him. People are basically laughing 
at what Jesus is doing. And Jesus, in an incredible act of grace and love, says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Jesus spoke that in the first century to those that were gathered around the cross. Jesus speaks that to you and I. Later in Romans, it says, while they were still full of sin, Jesus demonstrated his love by dying for them. None of us cleaned ourselves up, and then Jesus died for us. No, Jesus died for us while we were still very, very unforgivable. And yet this is what our God did for us. The Son, the member of the Trinity, giving his life for us. And then Jesus, before this, go to Matthew 18. It gives a very interesting story. Matthew 18 is what I would call the forgiveness chapter of the Bible. Jesus, knowing that that moment would happen on the cross, in anticipation of what he would do, he tells this parable. Look at verse 21 of chapter 18. Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 77 times. I actually spoke about this in January, about how this was hyperbole for Jesus saying you should forgive him as many times as necessary. And then verse 23, for this reason, now Jesus tells a story. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me. I'll repay you with everything. So do you get this thing? This slave owes money. He can't pay it. He's going to be thrown into debtor's prison. He throws himself on the ground and says, have mercy on me. Then look what happens. Verse 27, and the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. Verse 30. But the slave, he was unwilling, and he went and he threw him in prison until he should pay back what he owed. Do you get this? I know it's almost lunchtime. Stay with me here. (laughs) This slave owes this great debt to this king, and he throws himself down because I could never repay, but have mercy on me. The king gives him mercy. Then this same one who has received such mercy and forgiveness turns around and begins to choke the guy who owes him hardly anything. And he throws him in a debtor's prison. Look where Jesus is going with this. Verse 31. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved. Interesting word there. And came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed with him. 
And then look at this verse. Verse wrecks me. Verse 35. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother, your brother, from your heart. So again, the stakes on this are high. We grieve the Holy Spirit. We receive such mercy and forgiveness from Jesus from the cross. What will we do to others? This is the question that I want you to wrestle with here today. But again, the good news is this. Is that Jesus sets you free to somehow live a life to forgive others. As you experience the freedom of the cross, that allows you to feel secure in who you are in God. You're a child of God. You're secured by the Holy Spirit. And now, with nothing to lose, you don't have to make someone else pay a cost that Jesus has already paid. You can simply continue on the journey of forgiveness. Now, please, and I hope you understand this. This isn't something where it's like, oh, I heard... This guy at church talked about forgiveness, and now I forgive everybody. (laughs) This is a process. This is not an overnight thing. But what I want to invite you to do today is take the next step. Take the next step in your journey of forgiveness. Who is God calling you to take that next step with? Not just to naturally say, okay, I'm going to do this. But surrendering to the Holy Spirit who will guide you and lead you give you the strength to surrender bitterness for kindness, anger for forgiveness. Let's take those steps. I want you to hear this guy's story. I came across this a few weeks ago, and it moved me. And I think it's going to move you. Watch the screens. We end this week with a lesson in forgiveness from Steve Hartman on the road. It all went down on this block in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Back in 05, Jamel McGee says he was minding his own business when a police officer accused him of and arrested him for dealing drugs. You saying the officer made it up? Yeah, it was all made up. Of course, a lot of accused men make that claim, but not many arresting officers agree. So you phonied the report? I did. I falsified the report. This is former Benton Harbor police officer Andrew Collins. Were you just trying to chalk up an arrest? Basically, the start of that day, I was going to make sure I had another drug arrest. And in the end, you put an innocent guy in jail? Correct. Yeah. You lost everything. I lost everything. My only goal was to seek him when I got home and to hurt him. Really? That was my goal. Eventually, that crooked cop was caught served a year and a half for falsifying many police reports, planting drugs, and stealing. Of course, Jamel was exonerated, but he still spent four years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Today, both men are back here in Benton Harbor, which is a small town, maybe a little too small. Hey, guys, thank you. Last year, by sheer coincidence, they both ended up at Mosaic, a faith-based employment agency where they now work side-by-side in the same cafe. Oh, excuse me. And it was in these cramped quarters that the bad cop and the wrongfully accused had no choice but to have it out. I said, honestly, 
I have no explanation. All I can do is say I'm sorry. And Jamel says that was all it took. That was pretty much what I needed to hear. Today, they're not only cordial. Saturday, we went to the trampoline park. They're friends. Uh, you know, we talk about life. Such close friends. Not long ago, Jamel actually told Andrew he loved him. And I just started weeping because he doesn't owe me that. I, he, I don't deserve that, you know? Did you forgive for his sake or for yours? No, for our sake. Not just us, for our sake. Jamel went on to tell me about his Christian faith and his hope for a kinder <laughs> mankind. He wants to be an example. So now he and Andrew give speeches together about the importance of forgiveness and redemption. Grab this, we'll set it over there. And clearly, if these two guys from the coffee shop can set aside their bitter grounds, what's our excuse? Steve Hartman, on the road, in Benton Harbor, Michigan. And that's the CBS Evening News for tonight. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Now what CBS Evening News glossed over was what prompted and motivated Jamel to forgive Andrew was Jesus Christ. He met Jesus Christ in a real way, and I actually verified that. I emailed Jamel and this cafe in Michigan and heard back, hey, this is true. This is all legit. This isn't just some, like, temporary thing where they're on high. Like, this is truly deeply grounded in both of their relationship with Jesus Christ. This is what God can do for us as a community. And so I want to invite you to take this journey today, another step in the journey. But the journey isn't meant to be lived alone. We need brothers and sisters that will help us on this journey. We have the Holy Spirit leading and guiding us and prompting us. We have Jesus as our example. But we need one another because this journey can get discouraging. We can take a step forward and then be like, uh, too painful. <laughs> That's when the community, better together, comes alongside, prays for one another, encourages one another. One of the most beautiful things I've seen here in our community was a couple who was about to be married, and they both were estranged from parents in their lives, both sides. And it was so amazing to watch them before they got married say, we want to make things right with our parents. We're going to take steps towards building a relationship with our parents. And when one was weak, the other one was right there with them. And they were able to encourage one another. That's what we're called to do as a community of brothers and sisters in Jesus. So take that step. When you walk up to the stations, there's communion, and that's where it starts. Drink and eat freely from the table of grace as we remind ourselves that Jesus has forgiven us. And then in these little tin cans on the table around the room, there's a small nail. What I invite you to do is if you're in a place where you're not, you need to take that next step, Maybe it's starting the journey. Maybe it's continuing this journey. Maybe it's that final step. I want you just to take a nail and signify as you're walking back to your seat. Just pray, Holy Spirit, lead me and give me strength in this journey. And then also ask as you walk back to your seat, holding this nail, thank you, Jesus, for healing me, changing me. Show me people in my life that I need to walk with this through. Who are people that need to come alongside me and help me in this journey? And so with that, I invite us to worship through music, through visiting the stations, through giving. Let's respond to Ephesians chapter 4. Pray with me. Father, we thank you 
that you are the God of Jamel and Andrew. You're the God of all of us here that claim you as Savior. We pray that you would give us the strength and the courage to take the next step. Many of us say, nice for you to say, Matt, but not buying it. God, I pray that you would change hearts in this space right now. In Jesus' name, amen.